I would recommend getting off the birth control pill if you know you're in your 40s and you're in you're in between children and you're really struggling with libido. It's a one and once and done. Come in, it is inserted, it's in there for five so years. When you use withdrawal method, okay? So we're talking about pull-out method, withdrawal method. Seriously, everyone always wants to talk about libido. Well, you know, there's there can be such an imbalance for couples after they have a baby. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Welcome back to the Down to Birth show. Um, we're very excited today to have Anne Conkley from Ohio. She's a certified nurse midwife here today to talk to us about birth control. Anne, thank you for being here. Can you give us a little bit of background information on yes. yourself? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and talk with you guys. Um, so I'm a certified nurse midwife and a certified coach. I'm the founder of a company called Authentic Coaching, where I help women um, by creating time and space and tools to help them cultivate the change that they want in their lives. As a certified nurse midwife, I've also served as a medical director and um, in my role, and I've been in healthcare for about 15 years. One of my favorite portions that I do is counseling, and most of the time that's around contraceptive counseling. And so I use some of the um, elements of being a coach and being a mentor, um, and also the shared decision-making tools that we use as midwives to have conversations about contraception um, with women, um, and really around that idea of what do you want, you know, in terms of your reproductive life and, um, uh, you know, what works for you best. Um, and it's a really good conversation to have with women um, that doesn't necessarily center just on contraception, but it's a much larger conversation about, you know, what do you want in terms of your reproductive life? So typically women have 15 minute appointments with obstetricians about this. What are your conversations like? How long do they last? And where does the conversation take you? Yes, you're correct. I mean, most of our visits are every 15 minutes, sometimes 20, maybe sometimes even a little bit longer. And mine are really no different, to be very honest. Um, part of the conversation usually centers around the reason that someone's coming to me, right? It may be for some sort of contraception, it may be for something else. Um, but in that, once I understand you know, the need, then we can kind of work through it. But it isn't something that centers around like, okay, well, here's a birth control pill prescription. It usually tends to take on a bigger form, like, do you plan to have children ever? Yes, no. You know, it's like using a decision tree or an algorithm to say, well, do I, do I ever plan to have children? Yes, no. Yeah, if yes, then do you, have, do you plan to become pregnant within the next one to five years? Yes, no. Then we go, well, um, have you thought about any options or ways that you would like to prevent pregnancy to help you get to that one to five year mark of where you want to be? Then once I have that information, we can work backwards. And this is the same process I do in coaching, which is like, where are you now? Where do you want to be? How do we get you a method or a plan that will help you get from point A to point B? And um, can I just interrupt you for one second? And I'm yeah. curious, how how young are you starting with women? Are you talking to teenagers about this, or is it usually yeah. women who are getting ready to have a um, getting ready to have a baby or in their reproductive 
more in their reproductive time frame. I, th- I think this is a conversation we have regardless of age. I mean, I think if you're, you know, at a point where you're coming to a midwife, um, at least to me, um, you've probably hit a certain threshold of age. You've maybe been referred if you're on the younger side, under 18, maybe you've been referred from a pediatrician, or maybe there's something that's come up with your mom where you don't necessarily feel comfortable talking to your pediatrician, or you don't quite want to talk to your mom, but you need a little bit more. Um, and so the conversations start early and I, I think that's appropriate. Um, and that continues through lifespan for a lot of women um, or up until they reach a natural age of menopause or, or the, the age that their bodies begin to go through, you know, perimenopause and into menopause. Yes. So you mentioned the term LARC in the beginning of the conversation. Can you explain what that means to our listeners and then start to give us some examples of um, what you would bring up, what, what you would start with the conversation around? Yeah, LARCs are long-acting reversible contraceptives, and it's a blanket term, an umbrella term for methods that are long-term and that can be uh, put in place, they can be removed, and um, they're not permanent. So um, uh, LARCs include intrauterine devices like Mirena, Skyla. Um, are those uh, IUDs? Why am I bl- Yes, those are all IUDs, the copper IUD, the Par- which is a Paragard, um, and Kylina. So you have a couple of different options. LARCs uh, for IUDs. In addition to the IUDs, you also have methods like Nexplan, um, which is a, um, a, a contraceptive a implant or a small single rod that is inserted under the skin and can go for um, uh, anywhere from five years roughly, and based on where you are, if you're in the States versus in Europe, um, these methods have different uh, uh, timeframes in terms of when they can stay in, how long they're effective, and when they are recommended to be removed. Um, so, but LARCs are, um, are a great method, and it, it's interesting in that, um, Trish, I don't know, you know your experience, but mine has been that when I first started in practice roughly 15, well, roughly about 12 years ago at this point, I, we, I didn't start conversations off with LARCs. It was much more of a discussion about pills or maybe it was, uh, you know, um, uh, God, I don't even, I, Depo was probably the ring, Depo. Depo. <laughs> maybe even the ring. I'm, I don't yeah. even know. I think the ring was out at that point. And this is back when the patch was out. And, and so it, it was a little bit more of a limited conversation, meaning if somebody wanted to come in and talk about it, you know, we had a couple of options. We really, though, even though their IUDs were out, they were available, they were not used nearly as often now uh, then as they are now. That's why I was really curious about um, the younger age group, because in my experience, it was pretty much anyone prior to having a baby was thinking about the birth control pill. And then maybe after they had a child, they were thinking about an IUD or or, or something else. But I think the conversation today is really different. And the conversation needs to start at a younger age about the longer term um, reversible contraceptives that you're going to explain to us. Yeah. And I, I think the key is that if you have women who are just beginning to become sexually active and they want something, you know, they're, they're, they're teens, um, they, in addition to pretty much every other woman out there deserves to have the most effective method. And I, one thing that I, I commonly discuss with patients is this idea of, um, you know, when I used to, when I used to do counseling, it was always talk about, you know, pills or, or maneuvering or whatever. And we've, we've shifted now. And part of that is because the reality is that 
when you have to think about it, like um, we know that once we remove the daily issue of taking it, remembering it, um, oh, what do I do? I forgot it. So now I got to double up on pills. If we remove that whole piece, we increase the ability of the method to work to help you prevent pregnancy. Um, ba you know, based on what you want. So I, you know, the, so I, we've totally shifted, I think, um, you know, in terms of the way that we do counseling, and I think that's, that's appropriate. So what would the scenario be for a woman? Let's say you have a 25 year old woman who is in a um, long-term committed relationship, comes to you for contraceptive counseling. She doesn't want to have a baby right now because she's in her career and in a new relationship or whatever. And she's, you know, thinking maybe in her mid to late thirties, she'll have children. Tell us how the conversation would go. So I think the important part that you mentioned was that she doesn't want children right now. So let's get you. So if you say, well, yeah, I'm in my mid twenties, but I really, you know, don't want to um, consider having children until I'm 30. Great. So you've got about five years that you would like to effectively prevent pregnancy. Let's figure out what methods are available. And honestly, I'd start with a five-year method. Now we always have a conversation about what's your past medical history? Are there reasons or there are really few reasons to be honest that you uh, couldn't use um, a hormonal IUD like a Marina or a, um, a Kylina or a Skyla. Um, very few reasons, to be honest, um, and really not really many reasons that you couldn't use a pair guard of a hormone-free IUD. Um, but we would review past medical history and then decide, okay, well, if you want a five-year gap and the Cadillac option is in essence an IUD because it's so good at preventing pregnancy, meaning that in the first year of use, there's less than um, six out of a thousand women will get pregnant when they use, now this is information by Marina, but less than six out of a thousand in the first year of use will get pregnant. And then that's year one. And then years two through five, we're seeing that that rate actually drops down to less than two out of a thousand roughly. So, I mean, those are good numbers. So if we're talking about a way to get you from age 25 and barring that your past medical history says that you can use, you know, a Marina, let's say, then I would say, if you want to get five years and you want to have the best method, then this is the way that you do it. And it's a once and done, one visit. It's a one and once and done. Come in, it is inserted, it's in there for five years. If in the meantime that you decide that you plans change, you, you know, two years from now, you say, take it out. I will, I, I'm ready to, you know, try having a baby. Wonderful. Come in, we pull it, you're done. You know, return to fertility is quick. Is that method hormonal? Marina is hormonal. What do you say to all the women who don't want to have anything hormonal? I, you know, that is a very personal choice. And we can have a long, you know, a lot of conversations about, you know, the drawbacks, the positives and the negatives around hormones. Um, and Marina is not only FDA approved for um, prevention of pregnancy, but it's also FDA approved for treatment of heavy menstrual bleeding. It's, it's appropriate to have a conversation about what these are, there are some hormones that can assist you, that can decrease the amount of bleeding that you have, um, thus reducing the number of pads that you go through, the number of times that you bleed through your pants. So the, there are, you know, women, some women will say, I prefer not to have hormones. And that's absolutely, um, uh, you know, up to their individual choice. I, I think it's important to mention too, um, there's a difference with the hormones 
from an IUD versus hormones from a contraceptive pill and that the IUD hormones are acting locally and you're not taking the hormones orally, which has a much stronger impact because they have to be metabolized through the liver and, and processed differently. So that was always part of my counseling for women that, you know, this hormone effect is quite different than what you might just be thinking in terms of, oh, I don't want hormones. We're, we're really talking about yeah. just working locally in the uterus. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. But if you do have a client who does not want hormones, what would you say beyond that? So if the next step is to say, yes, I would like a method that will help me that's very effective, uh, I, de I decline to have, or I don't want to have hormones, then I would say the next step is a Paragard, which is a wonderful um, IUD. It's a copper IUD. It's good for 10 years. Um, we see that sometimes there's some data to say that women in the first year of use of a, a Paragard will experience heavier menstrual bleeding. And then at the year mark, it's, uh, it, it is reported as not as bad. And we don't really know if at the year mark, women have just adjusted to the change in amount of their menstrual bleeding at that point, or if it truly has, there's been an actual and appreciable change in amount of bleeding. Um, but Paracard's a great method. It's a, you know, it's again, it's a simple, um, it's a simple procedure that is done in the office, just like Marina and all the hormonal IUDs, takes a couple of minutes to put in. Um, and, um, you know, there, there's not much to it. I mean, that's the beauty. Plus, it doesn't impact your ovulation, which is great if you are somebody who is um, influenced by the mood changes of ovulation or it influences your sex drive. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important point. It's they, they actually don't get their period again for a while or they don't ovulate again for a while, even after they come off of it? Not necessarily. Usually, I mean, especially with pills, because the, the acting life of, of a birth, uh, the hormone dose that's in a birth control pill doesn't, isn't lasting much beyond... 20, maybe 48 hours, right? Which is why with, um, with a combined um, uh, hormonal birth control, meaning a birth control that has estrogen and progestin, um, uh, uh, we see that you, you really, if you miss a dose, you got to double up the next day, right? Because it just doesn't last more than maybe one to two days before we can see that those hormones without um, essentially suppression or an adequate hormone dose, we will start to see that they're the innate body starts to kick in and that's when you, when you can ovulate. So usually by roughly about seven days, you know, if you take a, t a traditional birth control pill and it is in for, you know, there's the, the three weeks of uh, hormone pills, right? And then that last week usually of sugar pills, which don't have any hormone in them, but it's a pill that you can take as a reminder to keep on schedule. So usually though, within a couple of days into the, um, the sugar pills or that last week, the body will, um, will have a withdrawal bleed, which is where the hormone levels have dropped off. The body uh, has essentially, which is, it's, this is a period, right? We call it a period um, when we are not on birth control, when we are on birth control pills, it's a withdrawal bleed, meaning it's a, a hormonal, hormonally induced bleed, right? So we withdraw the hormones because you stop, you complete that third week, you go into the fourth week, then within a couple of days, you bleed. So if you don't restart those pills, your natural hormones will start to kick in and you will then have a cycle in which you may ovulate. But the key is that with, after those first couple of days of being off a pill, like it's game on your hormones are, are, you know, uh, they are essentially coming back. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. So pregnancy is a possibility in that first month. You may be 
very likely to ovulate in that first cycle that you come off of pills, which is another reason we have a conversation often when people say, you know, well, okay, we want to try next year. Should we stop? Should I stop my pills now? And I say, no, I say, look, just keep going literally until the moment you decide I'm ready now. We, but stop when you're ready because the reality is it could be like a boom. I'm pregnant next cycle, which happens. And, you know, we don't want you to go through that until you're ready to go through that. And it always seems when my friends and I are discussing birth control that no one ever feels there's a perfect one out there. What do you see going on? Well, there's probably two pieces to this talk, right? There are women who, who have heard from either their grandmas, their aunts, that IUDs are terrible. Old stigma. Yeah, Slogan, not your grandmother's IUD. Yes, this is not your grandmother's IUD. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. And they're, they're, that wait, thought alone is good birth control. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there are, there are um, stigmas and myths that have been perpetuated and that we take as gospel. And, and so, and we see that. And so, you know, part of the discussion that sometimes is challenging in the beginning when we're talking about birth control is, there's resistance that, that comes with IUDs or with LARCs in general. And so it's, it's more of a conversation about, you know, yes, if someone comes in and self-selects and says, I would like a non-hormonal intrauterine device and I want long acting, very good and effective birth control. Wonderful. You're a great candidate for IUD, for, for a Paragard. Let's do this. And then you have this other segment of women who come in and say, well, I, I really, you know, I just want a pill because that's what they know. And they've been told that uh, IUDs are bad and larks are terrible and all of these myths. And, and then it becomes more of a nuanced conversation that has to occur between a patient and a provider. And this is if it's an, a nurse practitioner, a midwife, an OBGYN doctor, whoever, it, it becomes that we have to have more conversation about what's the best method for you based on where you are right now and what you want. One of the things I experienced was that women were um, uncomfortable with the IUD if they had not had a baby because they were afraid of the discomfort of insertion. Okay. So for years there was, uh, with IUDs, there was information that said, you know, they shouldn't be put in on women who've never had a baby before. And, and that is, um, absolutely not true. Uh, now, uh, we, we have evidence, we have data to support that IUDs are effective and they are appropriate for women who have never had children before. And so the insertion, you know, I have had women come to me who've never had children before and we put in IUDs and those IUDs, some of them, they go in easily. The procedure is quick. Uh, Some of them, it's a little bit more challenging and we're working essentially with um, a cervix and a cervix that if it's, if a cervix has never gone through the process of labor and birth, it's never had to open. It's never had to go to 10 centimeters. That cervix is, 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 sometimes a little bit more challenging um, to access and in order for an IUD to get up into the uterus. That does not mean it's impossible. That does mean um, the procedure is a little bit, it's just a little bit more uncomfortable. Some of them slide in very easily and it's a quick painless procedure. And some women who have had children before, they too have discomfort with the insertion. So it's, it's, 
you know, for women who are saying, oh, you know, I, I've never had a, a child before. I can't get an IUD. Not true. And for women who say, well, I've never had a, a child before. And so it's, it's dangerous for me. Not true. And if I've never had a child before, it's going to be really, really painful for me. Not true. It may be uncomfortable. There may be discomfort. There may not be discomfort. And honestly, that happens with pretty much everybody, to be quite honest. Right. That was also my experience. Yeah. For all of the um, women out there listening, if you're if you cannot remember these, don't worry. This is exactly why we, as certified nurse midwives, uh, the physicians who are out there, the nurse practitioners, like this is our bread and butter. It's our jam. So we know this information. And if you need a very visual depiction of what your options are. Bedsider is a really, really good website where you can actually look and see, oh, here are the different ones, and these are the rates of, of which one's effective and which one's you know, not as effective, and how do you use them? And so there's tons of information. So that's just a plug for Bedsider, which I love. It's a tool I've, I use, I've used a lot in the past with patients. Okay, so in our hormonal IUDs, we have Skyla, good for three years, um, Kylina, good for five years. And Liletta, which is the um, essentially the generic version of Mirena. So they all differ a little bit in terms of their um, doses of hormones. And um, Skyla, in addition, is a, and they're all, so uh, Skyla, um, Mirena, Kylina, you notice the A on the end, they're all produced by Bayer. So um, uh, the- And they're all best friends. <laughs> And they're all best friends. <laughs> and the difference is in the they size. They sound like so competitors. I, yeah, so I don't- <laughs> Actually, I, that's I, true. It's more accurate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but with Skyla and Liletta, you know, that there's really, um, uh, or excuse me, with Skyla and Marina, there's not that much of a difference in terms of the um, uh, size of it. And so, and there is a difference in terms of the bleeding profile, which means that you're more likely to experience that, that um, small amount of spotting in with the use of Skyla than you are with Mirena. So for most of my patients, I tend to recommend that if they want an, a hormonal IUD, that they go with Mirena because it's the, uh, the longest or the generic of Liletta. Um, it has the longest span that it's good for, right? So we're reducing the number of copays, the number of times you come into the office, um, and the number of procedures that you need. And we're also increasing the chance that you may not have that as much of that uh, irregular bleeding that sometimes happens, especially in the beginning of using uh, an IUD with a hormone on it. Um, the Just a quick note about Liletta, it's uh, same hormone, levonorgestrel, it is good for, it's approved for up to six years. Um, it's a generic of um, Mirena. They're both good options. I've put in both, no difference to them, except that they're made by different companies. That's down to Birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable, and Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, 
S-O-O-T-H-E dot com and use promo code down to birth. Okay. So you got next one on, which is um, next one is good for five years. This is a great method. It almost looks like a matchstick. It is put on into the skin, like right under the top layer of skin, um, usually in um, the arm, uh, essentially on the underside of the arm. So you, I, if I were looking at you and you had next one on and I could not see it, and um, it stays, it, it, it is a quick procedure that is done in the office that takes maybe about two minutes where we um, numb the skin and insert it. And it is um, the easiest birth control ever, hands down, ever, no questions asked. Um, and I have a, a lot of patients who like them. The removal of the device sometimes is a little bit uh, more, more of a procedure, meaning it takes a little bit longer. We have to go into where the um, device was inserted and use some tools to help us remove it. But it's, it, this is like the easiest birth control option I've ever seen. Um, in addition to the fact that the insertion is often painless. Which and is- it's equally as effective as an IUD. Equally as effective as an IUD in terms of its um, in terms of its prevention of pregnancy. The one change we see with the um, next one on versus using a hormonal IUD is that we the bleeding can change, and so more often I have women who on next one on have some irregular bleeding, and who um, who end up having a little bit of heavier bleeding. Um, that is irregular. So um, next one, I wouldn't say is a really good option for women who have super heavy periods and 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 they're irregular to begin with. We may just see a continuation of that. Now, if you're like, oh, I'm okay with that. That's fine. I, I'll deal with heavy and irregular as long as I have really good birth control protection, then you, it's not a big deal. Um, but, um, it, it, but it's a great method. Okay, so I sent a text message to a group of my friends and said, I'm speaking with a midwife about birth control. What questions do you have? And they have exceeded my expectations with excellent questions, the last of which is the best and most important one, I think, but we'll work our way to it, all right? Um, Midwife A, this is from my my friend. Midwife A says, if done correctly, the withdrawal method is 100% effective and pre-ejaculate does not contain sperm. Midwife B says, this is false and it's how she got pregnant with her third daughter. Who is right? I'm so glad she asked this question. Are you, why are you glad? <laughs> <laughs> because, it, because it's everybody's question. It's such a good question. Everybody is curious about this. It, mm-hmm. Does it contain sperm uh, or not? So when you use withdrawal method, okay? So we're talking about pull-out method, withdrawal method, right? When you use this, it's a very effective method of um, preventing pregnancy. And there are a lot of couples who use this. So the, 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 it, it, when you start to look at, okay, well, there's semen and then there's pre-ejaculate, okay? And, and we have um, in semen, all of our sperm that are ready to do their job, pre-ejaculate, we have no semen. Now, the key is that it is a timing issue. So when you use or commit to using withdrawal method, you must have two people in, or at least if you have a male partner, your male partner must be aware and comfortable with withdrawing when appropriate prior to ejaculation. So this is not an easy feat for every male out there, okay? There are many, so this is a great method for for couples who who do not want to use or for uh, partners who do not want to use 
um, uh, birth control, any kind of hormones, an IUD or a LARC. Um, the issue with it is that you have to have a partner who can actually withdraw prior to ejaculation. That is the issue. And that's probably where we see this conversation about, no, 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 that's how I got pregnant with my fourth. No, uh, withdrawal works great. Can I add one thing to it? Yeah. I totally agree with you. It works. It's a great method um, with two committed people. However, sometimes people will reinsert, have multiple, have intercourse multiple times in a short interval. And that is how you can get pregnant from the initial ejaculation. You can't do that and count yeah. on the withdrawal method That's to be a good effective. Point, Trisha. So the answer is no, there is no sperm in pre-ejaculate. There that is, none. is true. Oh, wow. Look at yes, that. All right. So let's go to the next question. Will hormonal birth control affect my emotions and my libido? And if so, how? Yes. And it depends on the type of hormonal birth control that you're using. So we usually see with pills, especially because the dose is higher, right? With, with birth control pills, you're looking at a higher dose of these of, or higher concentrations of um, hormones. And so oftentimes we can see that yes, libido is impacted in terms of um, how much um, circulating unbound testosterone you have. And then in addition, um, we sometimes can see some of the mood issues that come up too. Um, so that tends to happen less often with our IUDs because the dose of hormone, again, is on the device which sits in the uterus. And so it's absorbed locally. So we don't see, I would say, as much in terms of um, decreasing libido. And interesting, what I actually see happen sometimes with IUDs or with women who use the hormonal IUDs is that they have concerns about mood issues with the IUD. And sometimes we, sometimes it, it might be the IUD because they're hormones and, you know, if you've not used them before, like they'll, you have to kind of figure out how they work in your body. But sometimes it's that the dose of that hormone is so low. And so sometimes our other hormones are still in flux. And so we, we still can get elements, even with an IUD, we can still get some elements of PMS and some elements of the cycle, but not necessarily experience the bleeding. And so, so the hormone dose may be uh, low enough in an IUD where it's not, where it's uh, helping to control the bleeding and decrease it and prevent pregnancy, but it's not taking away all the symptoms. So sometimes patients chalk that up and say, well, it's the IUD is causing me to have, you know, the emotional, the swings and stuff. The reality is the dose may be so low that it's just, this is your, some of your natural, your, normal, your baseline, that's your base, but you have, exactly. but in, with the oral contraceptive pill, you do see that women can have a lot of a wide range of sensitivities to it. And the libido going up or down, we're talking usually down, uh, usually, usually going down. And I, I I'll admit, like, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't take any of that at this point. There are too many options on the market. So if you are in the, a moment of saying, I feel terrible on this pill because it's usually with the pill. Get like, make an appointment, get it changed because there's, there's other options there for you. Here's the next question. What about the statistics that 20 to 30% of men have chronic lifelong pain after their vasectomy? Wow, I did not know that. Um, or the idea that vasectomy may be linked to autoimmune disorders because you're releasing sperm into the body into places it's not meant to be. You're both shaking your head. So no, you haven't heard anything to support this? I don't think it's getting reabsorbed. No, it, they just stop producing it because they're they stop producing because it's like a negative feedback system where they don't, don't right. You don't empty them, and so there's no reason to then refill them oh, up. That's very um, interesting. So. Okay. I don't know. I mean, that that is probably a very generalized way of explaining it. You'd probably have, you'd have to talk to a urologist to really know exactly how the rate of sperm production and what happens when it's you don't well, you know what happens to the guy who's not having sex. 
All right, and we're down to the last question, and I think everyone's going to appreciate this one. This is not directly related to birth control, but what are the best natural ways to increase libido after giving birth? Seriously, everyone always wants to talk about libido. Well, you know, there's, there can be such an imbalance for couples after they have a baby. And yeah. it's, such a, it's such a tough situation. You know, it's something that partners yeah. can take personally. It's not personal. It's biological. Uh, you, what do you say to women who want natural ways to increase their libido? I think that's a great question. And I'm grateful to Natalia for asking it. What do you say to that? I would say this. I mean, the number of true women who, you know, who have a child and then who have issues with libido, like from a, from a hormone standpoint, if, if you're, especially if you're not on birth control and you're not breastfeeding, it's probably low. I mean, the, because it's not like libido dysfunction or change in libido occurs naturally because of having a child, pregnancy, labor, or birth. What happens though, in that we say, well, you know, low libido is a symptom of oftentimes the conversation that we don't have in the postpartum period or in the period around, you know, when you have children, which is that life changes a lot, responsibilities change, right? Schedules change, fatigue levels change, stress levels change, finances change, all these other things. And we chalk it up to like, how do I increase my libido? Well, the reality is your libido is probably fine. The question is, what do you do with your libido? Do you allow things like, how do you manage your stress? How do you manage the stress and the fatigue that comes with being a new parent? How do you manage the um, anxiety and the overwhelm that can sometimes result from, you know, trying to figure out a newborn or trying to figure out, you know, toddlers or small children? I mean, sleep schedules, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. So I would say my, my easy fix solution, if you're really looking for something, is that recognize it can be a normal change in the period after having children. Um, and it's important to find some coping mechanisms and tools that help us manage stress and that also allow us to schedule time for um, intimacy and for conversations with our partners um, that don't involve all the finances, they don't involve the bottles, they don't involve talking about sleep schedules, right? Like if you really wanna work on libido, get your schedule out and every week schedule 45 to minutes to an hour. It doesn't have to be nine hours long. We're not talking about like hours, oodles and oodles of sex. Like, like Trisha's example of a few times a night. Okay, go on. No, right. And I'm not sure, you know, I've got, you know, it, but like, but this is, this goes back to literally scheduling it. And so if, if libido is an issue or let's say if libido is, is code talk for like, I'm not getting the intimacy with my partner that I really crave, then it's time to schedule some time on the calendar, literally put it on your calendar, work it into the schedule so that you're starting to have moments and opportunities where your libido and where your drive is all of a sudden charged up where you're like, yes, it's a bit, I it's a bit like exercise. Okay? Like you, you, you gotta, gotta do it. Yeah. You gotta yes. work the muscle. Like literally. <laughs> I've heard watching your husband do chores is a really great method of foreplay. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that from numerous people <laughs> there there. We can get creative here, but I, but here's yeah. the thing I wanted to ask. What if it's beyond the, what if it's beyond that of having babies being tired? Because that is an incredibly hard time for couples to be intimate. But this is still a question for so many women five, 10 years later when they're getting their sleep, 
but they're worried or they're maybe perimenopausal and they're worried and they have maybe even a negative belief system around it. Is there anything they can do or are you saying general wellness, keeping your stress levels low, getting sufficient sleep and having emotional intimacy with your partner are really what it's always going to boil down to? Honestly, yes. Now, look, there are some concerns. I mean, if you start getting into more of like the depressive issues or the depressive symptoms, well, or you start to use additionally as we age, oftentimes we develop conditions that require us or that, you know, where we need to take medications on a daily basis that can affect our sex drive. And that's legitimate. But for the, for the majority of people, it has to be a conversation between you and your partner about how do I feel that um, we can achieve intimacy? How do I feel that we can have the, um, you know, the relationship that we, that I need us, I would like us to have, whether that is a physical relationship or it's an emotional one. Um, And it's, it's not the same for everybody, but it often boils down to making the time, making the commitment to the relationship. And then if you get into the, if you get into that and you say, but Anne, I scheduled the time we we are having the conversations. We are, um, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're trying to become physical and, and I still can't get comfortable. Then this is when we reach out to our professionals. We have tons of therapists who are literally just, this is their jam. Like they do sex therapy and they're wonderful. They're a wonderful resource to us. So if, if we really get to the point where you're like, I set aside the time, I'm communicating what I want. My partner is listening to me, but I still just don't feel right or I'm having issues with the actual penetration, whatever it is. This is when you go to your, this is when you go to your professionals. You say, okay, I either need to talk to my midwife, my doc, or I need to maybe call a therapist and start talking about it a little bit more and explore. Are there any um, supplements that you recommend for low libido or um, nutritional things that people can do? I mean, I completely agree with you on everything you've said. And I think that a, a, a very large con- contributing factor outside of just relationship stuff um, to women having low libido in their 40s is high stress, high cortisol specifically, and how that really suppresses other hormones in our body. So there's some things that we can do to supplement or lower our cortisol levels that are maybe not quick fixes. There's no real quick fix to any of this, but something that can just assist a little bit. One of the things that I used to use in my practice was something called maca. Um, And it, it, you know, it seemed to energize women and it seemed to stimulate their sex drive a little bit. And if it just can give you that nudge. Right. If, like you said, if it's more issues of cortisol levels and we're having more issues of stress, more issues of a lack of good communication between partners, a lack of talking about what it is you want, then I think we have to intervene with stress management tools. And I, you know, we start talking about meditation. I mean, five minutes of meditation a day. Like what, what if we all said, Hey, in order to improve our sex lives, we're going to meditate for five minutes a day with our partners or without our partners, but we're, we're going to do an intervention to bring the cortisol levels down, (sighs) breathe deeply. And then like, okay, what do I want? You know, start again. So, or emotional freedom technique or tapping. I mean, there, there are a handful of interventions that we, you know, that I think can in, that can help us that don't require meds that don't require you know, a long, a list of side effects and, um, get a book on tantric sex, get a book on tantric sex. I mean, there's so many, this is why it's so, it has to be, there's so many little things and it's individualized. Like what, what turns one woman on 
doesn't turn on another woman. And it's all, it, that's like the conversation we often don't have. Well, here's the conversation we often don't have as well, that the brain is the most sexual organ. Oh, absolutely. Either way, it starts with the brain. It starts with that emotional connection for sure and resolving whatever, like you guys are saying, stress, struggles within herself Mm -hmm. or in the relationship. And just to bring it back to the contraceptive conversation that this all started around, I would recommend getting off the birth control pill if you know, you're in your 40s and you're in, you're in between children and you're really struggling with libido, it's time to have that conversation about a different contraceptive method. Absolutely. And that's, you know, um, yes, 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 yes. It's, we, we have to do some mind work. We have to do a little bit of, you know, working with the stress. And yes, we should also look at some of the other medications that we're using, especially to the antidepressants. We see a lot of, you know, hormone uh, or just libido, you know, decreased libido with the antidepressants, which um, you know, are, are more commonly used as we have more conversations about mental health and they're wonderful for so many, so many people and so many women, they're life-changing, um, you know, and with it comes kind of this second conversation of, okay, I feel better with my mental health, um, though I don't feel like my sex drive is there. What do I do now? And, you know, it's just a continued conversation to have, but it's not that easy one-stop shopping, like, do this. It's very holistic. It's affected by so many things. There's so many libido killers. Yes. Out there. <laughs> you know, this conversation with you was really evidence as to why appointments with our women's healthcare providers need to be longer than 15 minutes. I would agree with that for sure. <laughs> if you enjoyed our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share a favorite episode or two. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Down to Birth Show or contact us and review show notes at downtobirthshow.com. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. So, so you have sex, you pull out then the man has ejaculate on his penis or there's sperm around and then you have very close together, you have another round and you insert the penis and then the sperm is on the skin. And what happens if they have sex three times in a row? <laughs> Can you just increase your chances <laughs> of getting pregnant. <laughs> okay. All right, fine.